Welcome to the Net Hero podcast with me, Simit Bose. Thanks to those of you who've been following this already. It's great to see so many people downloading. So do spread the word because we want to create a platform here where you participate. So my voice is a little hoarse this week, but uh, uh, more on that a little later. And there is a little bit of strong language just at the beginning of this. So uh, if you're a bit sensitive, I'm just giving you a warning. But our story this week, really, that we're going to concentrate on is absolutely intriguing. It's about animals possibly morphing, uh, changing shape because of climate change with some awkward consequences. You're not really looking at penises so much uh, because we generally don't thermoregulate using our penis. I told you it was going to be a little bit uh, racy. More on that a little later. But before we talk about our main interview today, I'd like to just touch on what's been happening on a crazy week for energy. Literally, in the space of seven days, we've had uh, energy companies going bust. We've had the government talking about gas prices and so many people talking about the price cap and then and then a wry comment a careless comment whatever a comment that just said we've got a few problems getting a few delivery drivers out to forecourts has led to a panic at the pumps that i haven't seen since the year 2000 some of you are old enough to remember that ridiculous rush on petrol then well we've got an even worse one this time because this is self-made. And that's certainly the view of Steve Coombe, membership manager at the Petrol Retailers Association, who spoke to our reporter, Dimitris Mavrakefalidis, earlier this week. I have listened uh, to an interview of the chairman of PRA claiming that the current crisis is entirely the fault of the person who leaked details of a cabinet meeting uh, to the press. Do you agree with that? Uh, to, well, yes, the, the chairman says that. Of course, I'm going to agree with it, but also I think the press have made it a lot worse than by sensation the headlines and then all the newspapers on Friday morning. Um, once you, you you put a headline saying running on empty or fuel stations dry, of course it's going to instigate panic buying. The oil companies uh, and others are saying that come Thursday, hopefully Friday, this should have certainly subsided by some bit. What would you advise our drivers? Not to panic buy. But by all means, if anyone needs fuel, they're running very low. It's a, it's a necessity. But we've had issues. We've had phone I've had phone calls from retailers who tell me that people are coming in and just putting in one pound or one pound fifty to keep the tank topped up to the brim. I mean, I mean that's just you know all they're doing. They're queuing for that, uh, which is you know making the situation far worse than what it should be. So there you've heard it. Stop panic buying. We have enough petrol, ladies and gents. Please don't go glugging it down. Now, on to our main interview this week, which is a tale, a curious tale of animals. Not just their tails, their ears, their trunks, and other appendages. To explain all, I had a great conversation with Professor Matthew Simons from Melbourne's Deakin University. And I kid you not, this is what's coming up next is proper scientific so now this is a story that we covered and I thought, what the heck? It sounded like something that I'd make up as a, a TV script or something out of a sci-fi horror movie, that animals could morph, change because of climate change, that we could have elephants with ears the size of Dumbo. Didn't go far as saying that they'd fly, but you know, is it possible that animals are already adapting and shifting because of the pressures of climatic change? 
Well, it's a story that definitely caught our attention, and I'm delighted to say joining us from Melbourne, Australia, is Professor Matthew Simons, who's from Deakin Uni in Melbourne. And, and you sort of, um, along with your research student, you, you published this study. And Matthew, thank you. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. My first question to you is, did you have a little sherry before you came up with this? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not completely fantastical. The idea is based on a ecological principle called Allen's Rule, which is not a new idea at all. It was actually proposed back in the 19th century by uh, an American naturalist called Joel Allen. He observed that animals that live in warmer climates tend to have longer appendages. So longer legs and tails and ears and uh, beaks as well, if we're thinking about birds. There is a, a reason for this in that if you've got a, a large appendage, you've got a more surface area to your body. And so right. that's a liability in cold environments because you lose too much body heat. And so you should actually have a small smaller appendages in cold climates but it's an advantage in hot climates because you can pump more blood to those appendages and you can get rid of your excess heat and and you can cool down obviously for things like mammals and birds where we are warm-blooded and maintain our body temperature all the time uh, if you've ever had heat stroke you'll know how unpleasant that is and actually sometimes yes. fatal in cases um, so anything you can do to sort of cool yourself down is an advantage. So that was an observation made on looking at, you know, the distribution of animals across the planet. But it's not that much to then extend that principle to think, well, if the climate's getting warmer, would we expect to start seeing animals to develop longer appendages as a way of dealing with those increases in temperature? And that's why we were looking for this. So, yeah, I don't think Sherry was uh, too much involved in it. <laughs> now, uh, uh, we're being very clean here, appendages. I, 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 I wondered whether we should talk about the, uh, the lower regions of appendages. I mean, we're, are we going to have horses with very large endowments? Is, are you not talking to that sort of level, are we? No, no. So I, I, I suppose the word appendage there could be interpreted uh, wrongly by someone who <laughs> might be having nefarious Someone as childish as me, Matthew, yeah. But no, in, in all seriousness, I mean, we, we do, uh, people can see that obviously, you know, people kind of know that elephants cool their bodies with their ears because you know the big surface area hmm. this this concept from from um was it joel allen you said joel was, allen it, yes yeah what was this based on actual kind of observations and did he publish anything that showed this actually this actually was was true yeah i mean he had observations of his own i, I don't think you know by modern standards they wouldn't qualify as rigorous scientific uh, analyses, but um, his most famous observation was looking at the ears of different species of rabbit and hare in North America. Yeah. So if you look at something like an Arctic hare, it has little stubby yeah. ears, 
and then look right. at something like a jackrabbit, which lives down on the sort of border of Mexico and, uh, and the United States, and they have big, huge, long ears. So that was the kind of basis of his uh, argument. You know, in terms of thinking about what we would see with animals today, you're, yeah, you're not really looking at penises so much uh, <laughs> because we generally don't thermoregulate using our penis. But uh, Thank we would. No, no, exactly. <laughs> but uh, you would be looking certainly at legs and tails in uh, a lot right. of mammals, particularly in things like rodents and other small mammals like that. And then in bird beaks, where very much they use the beak uh, as a way of transmitting body heat. If you think of something like a bird, there's very few parts of the body where they can easily shed heat because they're covered in yes. feathers and down. Yes. So there's really only the beak the, and the legs and a little bit around the eyes where they have um, those kind of surface areas where they can lose heat easily. Um, there's some other birds that are sort of slightly weird, like um, that have wattles and stuff like that. And, you know, chickens being the best example of those where they've got the sort of fleshy things on their face. But for the most part, that's the main areas where a bird is able to lose heat. Have you actually seen this? So what's your research looked at? How have you extrapolated? What did you observe? Right. So, well, in, in this latest paper that's, uh, that we've just published, this is a review paper where we were using this idea of, based on Alan's rule, of wondering whether there's any evidence for birds or, uh, and mammals increasing appendage size. And so what we did was look through the literature at any kind of study we could find that has reported changes in yeah. the size of those organs over time and seeing whether that then sort of is related to changes in temperature. Uh, I had previously about four or five years ago done some uh, research on parrots, different parrot species in Australia. This was with a, another student of mine. And we had found then that um, we looked at five different species using museum specimens. We got really good museum collections here in Australia dating back to like the late 1800s and just had a look to see, well, is there any evidence that their beaks are getting bigger over time? You've got a, a range of times from 1880 through to 2010 as it was when we did this research. And in four out of the five species, we found clear increases in their beak size over that time. But couldn't um, that just be an ev evolutionary thing to do with, I don't know, they're eating different things or whatever? Are you, are you confident you can relate it to climate, climate warming? Right, absolutely right. So yes, you're right. It could be, well, what do parrots eat? They, they're kind of granivores, meaning they eat sort of seeds predominantly, although they also eat fruit as well. And yeah, so potentially maybe this is uh, an effect of change in diet. But then when you start to see the same patterns repeating in mm -hmm. birds with very different kind of diets, you know, things that are uh, insectivorous birds, and also then you start to see the pattern in the tails of rodents that live in different environments and in different appendages and then animals that make their livings in different ways, then it starts to become more difficult to construct a series of different arguments for why rodents' tails are increasing or shrews' ears are increasing or bats' wings are increasing. The only consistent th thing that explains all of those or the underlying thing that does link to all of them is that they are experiencing hotter temperatures. Right. 
let's think a second here. So everything you've talked about seems to be mammals and, and birds, yeah? Yes, that's correct. Reason for that is that, first of all, Alan formulated his role explicitly thinking about warm-blooded animals because of right. the need for warm-blooded animals to maintain their body temperature at a very, sort of within a very limited range. Cold, so-called cold-blooded animals don't need to do that. They can sort of veer around in their body temperatures quite a bit more and, and function still. Interestingly, though, there is uh, a little bit of work that has been done, uh, which we do discuss in the sort of actually in the appendix of the paper we've just published, looking at um, similar patterns for ectotherms. It's much less, there's been a lot less work done on, in this area on ectotherms, but there is at least, uh, there is some indication in Wait, frogs. What's, what's an ectotherm? Is that, is that kind of a reptile or something? Oh, sorry, an ectotherm is the, uh, sorry, is the posh scientific term for what we would call a cold-blooded animal. Right. So something that does, but is reliant on the external environment to modulate its temperature. Lizards, snakes, those sort of things. Basically everything else other than mammals and birds and dinosaurs, right. if you want to go back in time, but yes. <laughs> yeah. yep. That's it. That's for another one, Matthew. I'd, 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 I'd love to get you on about dinosaurs and another. So, okay. All right. So I can, I can understand the logic behind this. What sort of time scale is this happening? Because you said you've looked at sort of samples from the 1880s, you know, can you say that actually over the last say 50 years since 1971, something like that, there's been a significant increase or is it, it's just been trickling over and this is just a gradual change in animals as often happens during evolutionary biology? Yes, so the parrot one was a bit unusual in being over quite that length of time. Most of the other studies that we reviewed in this uh, article were generally since the sort of 1950s. So you're looking 50, 60 years or so of uh, information. Now, the kind of changes you're talking about here are, in a sense, you, you probably wouldn't necessarily just from eyeballing them see this difference. You know, we're not literally talking about elephants with Dumbo-sized ears sort of developing over the last 50 years. Uh, uh, you had to spoil it, didn't you? I know. Yeah, yeah. I think we might have heard more reports about it had that been the case. That was my headline. <laughs> <laughs> but... It is a significant effect. There is, there is definite increase. You know, if we're talking about the parrots, we're talking about a four to 10% increase in their beak size, for example. In the case of the bat's wings, we're looking about 2% increase in the size of the bat's wings. You know, these are small increases, but they're noticeable increases. And you're right, we think about evolutionary processes as being incredibly long-term things and yeah. incredibly um, slow things that you would never notice in you know the blink of a, a human lifetime but no because what we do know from say previous work that's been done on like the classic study species for evolutionary biology darwin's finches in the galapagos mm. you know these are the, the iconic yeah. poster children of uh, modern evolutionary biology if you like we know that within the course of a single generation, we can observe evolutionary change as a result of a particular food supply drying up uh, and right. only certain individuals that have certain types of beaks, say, being able to survive because they're able to feed on seeds that other types of individuals can't feed on. And we can see that. So you can see these evolutionary changes in short periods of time. 
What I think is interesting here is that obviously we've got something like climate change uh, and climatic warming, and we can see this signal of evolutionary change being caused by climatic warming. We know that this has happened in evolutionary past, but that's usually over much longer periods of time, you know, right. hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Yeah. You can either take it as either worrying or potentially you could interpret it as reassuring, although I would insert strong caveats on that, um, that you've got animals adapting to these changes in the climate. Can I ask you a quick point here? Um, you, you've done your study based on, uh, I assume, animals in Australia, birds and uh, mammals in Australia, have you? Or have you looked globally? The, the work no, this, with, with this review, it was, uh, we've looked at reports from anywhere in, in the world, basically. Yes, any studies from elsewhere. So we've got- Okay, so this is happening worldwide. Yeah, we've got shrews in Alaska. We've got, uh, sorry, shrews in Northern Europe. We've got bats in China. We've got other species of bird in North America. Um, so yeah, it's it's not just Australia. It's an interesting one because um, you just said it there. You could think of it as this is terrible, what's happening. Or if we are warming, this is, isn't this a good thing that the animals are adapting? They're not, how do you see it? It becomes a very complicated tapestry here because, first of all, what we don't really know yet is, okay, we've identified a bunch of species where this seems to be going on. There'll also be a bunch of species where this isn't going on. So is that good or bad for them? So one thing we want to understand, which is what Sarah, my PhD student, is currently working on, looking at a whole bunch of different Australian bird species is, well, which species are actually changing and which aren't? And if so, why is it that bunch of species changing and these ones aren't? You know, is it, is it that the other ones, the ones that aren't changing are adapting in different ways? Perhaps right. they're changing their behavior to sort of be able to seek out cooler areas or seek out the shade in the middle of the day or something like that, you know. So there's multiple ways that animals could deal with a, a warmer climate. But in terms of also, you know, if you think of like a bird beak, well, as well as being involved in thermoregulation, we know it's a basically the fundamental structure by which they make their living in terms of mm. what they feed on often the size and the shape of the bird beak is really intimately related to what kind of food they can exploit sure. so mm. we really don't know well okay if you're changing your beak to get bigger to deal with uh, increased temperatures yeah. What does that mean in terms of how well you're going to be able to carry out the other aspects of yeah, your... gathering food and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Are we seeing? I mean, we've we've heard anecdotal evidence, in, particularly in the UK. You know, this summer over here, there's been a bit of a scare story. You know, giant spiders are coming up because it's getting warmer. All of that stuff. You'll have maybe mosquitoes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, with insects, I know your study hasn't really. I mean, can you sort of hypothesize if? They they will be undergoing change. We're not going to get massive, huge spiders and huge. I don't know. I don't fancy bumping into a sort of a ten foot <laughs> snake or something that's just crawled out of there. So, are we seeing this as something that you think will just affect mammals and birds? The predictions for cold blooded animals like insects are more difficult to. There's a, it's a little bit more complicated the theoretical basis for that. Yeah. Because if you're large it can be a problem in terms of 
heating up. If, if it's a cold morning, you're going to heat yeah. up more quickly if you're small. And so mm. that's a good thing. If you're large, then it takes longer to, to heat up. And so, you know, you don't necessarily want larger appendages. It becomes a little bit more difficult to predict because they're not necessarily needing to maintain mm -hmm. a specific body temperature. I think probably the things you're referring to there are more to do with changes in the distribution of those species. Yes. That's what we're talking about as well. Species moving up from, uh, in, in the UK, more southerly parts of Europe up into the UK yeah. to try and, in a sense, escape from the heat, or at least they're more now able to exploit the environment in the UK because it's more yeah. like the environment they were or they evolved in or were adapted to. So that's less likely, I suspect, to be a cause uh, caused by uh, selection for shape changes as just for the species changing where they're living. Before we end, let's, I mean, look, I can see all the things make sense of what you've said here. Are we likely to see a significant change in animals, you say? I mean, would you be able to say that, hey, in 200 years' time, a rhino will look very different or an elephant or a giraffe or whatever because of climate. I mean, or are we talking just, as you say, very, very subtle but significant changes over, over decades? You know, with any evolutionary change, these things are always subtle changes at first. It's just that they take place usually over very long timescales. So, you know, you can have a snapshot of a species from five million years ago and then a species now and say, well, look, they look really different, but there's been five mm. million years in between there. Yeah. So my suspicion is that this is more likely to affect smaller mammals and birds. So right. that just because the appendages are relatively so much more of their surface area than something like an elephant, uh, sorry, Dumbo fans, uh, yeah, so I think it's more likely to be observable with them. You know, on a day-to-day -day basis, are you going to sort of suddenly see this? Possibly not. But I think if you come back in 200 years' time, there would be a measurable difference between, at least in some of the proportions of these smaller birds and mammals, than you would see now. I don't think you're going to be sort of falling off your chair about it. But I think the more worrying thing is, well, what does this mean for them in terms of how else they make their living? How they survive. Yeah, yeah mm. and how they survive. And if they do survive, is this going to help them survive? Or is it sort of, is temperature causing this change and actually then pushing them towards extinction because they can no longer really sort of function in their niche? We obviously are obsessed with what we're trying to do right now. Globally, we've got the COP coming up, uh, all of that sort of stuff. But in reality, this warming is happening. Is this, are these changes, if you're observing them over, as you say, the timescales you have, fairly recent timescales, do you think this is just inevitable? You know, even if we stopped all emissions tomorrow, it would take decades for the earth to readjust itself. So they're on this path now of change? It'd be nice to say no, uh, but I, I think realistically, yeah. Um, I think the key issue is what can we do Yes. to manage this risk and, and manage this effect. You know, what yeah, do we need to do? Yeah, that was going to be my last question. What can we do? We can't do anything, can we? Well, I mean, there are, you know, if you look at work, say, that's 
being done here in Australia at the moment by the World Wildlife Fund. Um, one thing say, they're, they're concerned with is the effect of rising temperatures on, um, say, sea turtle sex development, because the sex is determined by the temperature at which the right. eggs are sort of um, laid, if you sort of mean, or laid in the sand. And as it gets yeah. hotter, basically, there's going to be more females. Um, right. And so they have programs here where they go out onto beaches and actually in the middle of, on hot days and water down the sand on the beaches gotcha. to try and yeah, keep yeah, the yeah. sand cool. I mean, that's all well and good, but you think like on a broader scale that that's not how you're going to manage that kind of intervention for every single species mm-hmm. uh, on the planet. I think what we have to do is, and which is something that we're working on in my group at the moment, is actually link these changes to what is this meaning for the species? Is the species increasing in numbers? Is the species decreasing in numbers? And also, you know, looking also at the species that aren't changing, you know, maybe those are the ones that are in real trouble uh, because they're not they're not able to adapt to the changes in the climate. So if you can relate that all together and work out, okay, which are changing, which ones then are then most impacted or not, then you can start to focus your management plans for those species better. And if that means doing things like translocations or captive breeding programs, but of course, you know, you're going to have to there's still finite resources for that kind of stuff. So you're going to, you have to, you know, make some sort of decisions about, well, what, what are going to be the priorities here? And yeah, there's a, I'm not a conservation biologist, but I know there is a huge amount of debate about, well, do we practice triage in this case? Uh, and if so, well, how do we make the decisions about which aspects of biodiversity we're going to try and save and which ones we don't? He really was fantastic. And if you want to look up what he's doing, you can get in touch with Matthew. It's Matthew Simons, which is S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. So Matthew.Simons at deakin.edu.au. So, or you can just search Matthew Simons at Deakin University. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you again on the Net Hero podcast. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.